Biblical theology. Like I said at the beginning, this is a class that I'm excited to teach and intimidated to teach. <laughs> like Moses, God says to Moses, take off your sandals. The, where you're standing is holy ground. <laughs> that's, that's how I approach, I mean, I always approach the classes I teach with a, a sense of my inability, my sense of neediness, but especially biblical theology. Uh, this is a class that's weighty. This is a class that is transformative for a lot of people. I, once I uh, understood biblical theology, I felt like I never read the Bible the same way again. You know, when you understand the Bible, not as a collection of short stories or a collection of failed heroes, uh, finally until you get to the, the big hero, Jesus, right? Or uh, a, a collection of just moral teachings, once you understand the Bible as a single unified whole, a single story culminating in the Christ event, um, you can never read the Bible the same way again. Actually, I think my first introduction to biblical theology was when I was in a children's ministry at my church growing up. And uh, we were talking about the Exodus story. And um, my teacher asked the question. I'm very grateful for this. This was like... This moment in my life, this is a revolutionary moment in my life, happened as I was a child. The teacher asked us, why were the Israelites in Egypt? Why were the Israelites enslaved in Egypt? Very simple question, right? And she said they were enslaved in Egypt because of the famine in the time of Joseph and the 80 people went down to Egypt to be rescued from the famine, and then a pharaoh who didn't know what Joseph had done came to power. And for the first time in my life, I had these two different stories, right? The story of Joseph in Egypt, the story of the Exodus, and they were just like these two different stories. For the first time in my life, they were connected. And the, there's a, it's a powerful moment when you realize how all these little stories you've always been told growing up or even as you're reading your Bible, when you start to connect them and see the, the, how they're all not self-sustaining units, but they all exist within an overarching storyline that goes from creation to new creation. And I hope, that, I hope that many of you, I hope that all of you have those kinds of moments this week where you realize, I mean, we've been teaching biblical theology throughout, right? All the way from, uh, I mean, probably I'm going to hit on this a little bit, but all the way from Ben's class, one of my main, one of the main ways I instruct our teachers is to come and do biblical theology. And even Dr. Blazowski's class last week, a lot of it was biblical theology. He starts off with asking you, what, why is Son of David significant? And he's doing a biblical theology of God's Son as God's covenant partners, right? Starting with Adam, Abraham, Israel, David, Christ. That's, that's what we're doing, right? The main thing we're doing is biblical theology, because I think that once you understand the, the overarching story of the Bible, that's when the Bible becomes so much more accessible. And it stops being a, a book with these rules of do's and don'ts. Yes, it has do's and don'ts in them, but it starts to become this gospel-centered story that culminates in the person of Jesus Christ, once you understand how all these things work together. Well, let's start, with, let's start with a very simple question, right? What is biblical theology? <laughs> if we're doing a class on biblical theology, we should be asking the question, what is biblical theology? Um, so turn to the person next to you and ask them, what is biblical theology? And talk about that. Okay. <clears throat> so I, I hope the... I hope that this is a helpful exercise. We've talked about what biblical theology is a couple times already in class, right? That was how we started off our prolegomena class, was what is biblical theology, exegetical theology, historical theology, systematic theology, practical theology, and how they all relate to each other. Remember the house diagram, right? Um, so we talked a little bit about what this is, but let's refresh our memories. What is biblical theology? Let's start, let's start it with this. Is biblical theology simply theology that is biblical as opposed to unbiblical theology, right? So we have unbiblical theology, and we have biblical theology. Is that what we're saying? No. So what, what, what am I getting wrong there? Help me understand. All our theology is biblical. Yeah, 
Yeah. So it's syst- yeah, systematic theology is biblical as opposed to unbiblical, right? Hopefully. Hopefully our systematic theology is biblical as opposed to unbiblical. Good. Yeah, so we're not saying that it's, it's biblical as a, in meaning that it corresponds to what the Bible says. Hopefully all of our theology is biblical. Hopefully our practical theology even is biblical in that sense. Um, is, how about, is it, what about as opposed to systematic theology? What is biblical theology as opposed to systematic theology? And I think that once you understand this dynamic, you start to really understand how biblical theology functions. What is that? Yeah, so it seeks to understand progressive revelation. That's key. So, uh, so biblical theology, let's say we're doing a biblical theology even of the righteousness of God. <clears throat> we can do a, a systematic theology of the righteousness of God, or we can do a biblical theology of the righteousness of God. If we're doing a biblical theology of the righteousness of God, we're trying to understand the righteousness of God as it is slowly unfolded in the Bible. As it's slowly revealed to us in the Bible. And there's a sense, uh, we could say progressive uh, slash temporal. There's a temporal nature to biblical theology. I'm not stepping back and looking at the Bible as a whole. I'm getting myself into the narrative of the Bible and trying to understand how the different themes are revealed as the narrative unfolds. Because Genesis doesn't know as much about the righteousness of God as Romans does, right? There wasn't as much about the righteousness of God revealed to Moses as there was to Paul. And that's not a problem in our theology. It's what we've been saying about progressive revelation the whole time. That what exists in seed form grows into a tree by the time we get to Romans. It's all there, but it's not wholly revealed yet. Or we can say the faithfulness of God, or we can say the justice of God, the righteousness of God. And Moses' experience at the top of Mount Sinai is quite an experience of the holiness of God that was not revealed before then, right? Good. So there's, there's a, a sense in which we understand it progressively or temporally. We understand the progress. Really, what we could say here then is uh, biblical theology seeks to understand the Bible as the Bible presents itself. It seeks to understand the Bible as the Bible presents itself. So, how, how did the Bible come to us? The Bible did not come to us as a systematic theology textbook. <laughs> The Bible didn't, God didn't drop Wayne Grudem or Herman Bavinck or Burkhoff out of the sky and say, there you go. That's everything you need to know about me. God actually designed his revelation to be told in story form. And biblical theology seeks to preserve that. Systematic theology understands that um, unless we systematize and categorize uh, a lot of what we're saying, and make theological conclusions, and read back in light of those theological conclusions. Remember, we're talking about first reading versus second reading versus third reading. Biblical theology seeks to preserve the organic nature of the Bible. It seeks to preserve the progressive, unfolding story nature of the Bible. So, um, the Bible is a single story and not a collection of stories. Biblical theology tries to show that and read the Bible in light of that. It's the story of God, right? The story of God who's revealed in Genesis 1 as the God who says, let there be light and there was light. The God who breathes into man. The God who speaks. The God who walks in the garden, right? The God who judges. The God who promises in Genesis 3.15. The God who punishes and further curses Cain in Genesis 4. He's the God who... um, who destroys the earth in Genesis 6, who destroys Babel in Genesis 11, who makes more promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. He's the God who brings his people out of Egypt because he's faithful to his promises. 
He's the God who gives law and commandments because if his people are to live in right relationship with him, they must be holy like he is holy. He's the God who gives the day of atonement in Leviticus 18, 16. Leviticus 16, because, because he knows that us and our weaknesses need atonement, need righteousness. He's the God who sets up kings and tears down kings. And he's the God in his sovereignty had Israel exiled because of their sin. He's the God who brought Israel back from exile and rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the walls in Ezra and Nehemiah. He's the God who sends Jesus Christ to redeem us from our sins, to perform the greater exodus. He's the God who will always live with us for eternity, right? I will be their God and they will be my people. That is the God we're talking about. You see, what I'm doing there is biblical theology. It, It doesn't just ask who is God and then look at all these different texts and systematize and say, okay, here's everything we know about the sovereignty of God. Here's everything we know about the righteousness of God. Here's everything we know about the justice of God. But it just seeks to unfold the Bible's story. He's, like, he's the God who redeems, though, right? He's the God who redeems. So if we're, if we're thinking about God in that light, he's the God who, in Genesis 3.15, makes promises of restoration. He's the God who provides animal sacrifice at the end of Genesis 3 and clothes people. He's the God who doesn't leave us naked and exposed, and he's the God who is not content with garments that we have constructed. No, we must have his garment. We must have Christ. He's the God who redeems people out of Egypt. He's the God who uh, redeems his people out of exile. He's the God who redeems us out of the curse of the law. Isn't it interesting, Paul, and we'll talk about this in Galatians 3, when, when Paul thinks of the law... He uses Exodus language imagery, right? In the Exodus story, God's people were redeemed out of slavery to Egypt, but in Galatians three, you need in Galatians four, you need to be redeemed out of slavery to the law. The law has become the taskmaster that Pharaoh was in Genesis one through thirteen, fourteen, right? He's the God who redeems, who buys his people back. He's the God of Hosea three who redeems Gomer out of uh, the slave market, right? The prostitute. It represents his people, represents us. And ultimately, he's the God who redeems through sacrifice, right? The God who redeems through sacrifice. Again, Genesis 3, the killing of the animals, the day of atonement, even, uh, even, the, even the sacrifices at the inauguration of the temple are celebratory worship sacrifices. And the Passover event itself looked back to God's redemption through the sacrifice of a firstborn son, right? Which will ultimately be his own firstborn son. Jesus Christ, who redeems us from death, redeems us from sin, redeems us from the law, who purchases us out for God, right? See, we're understanding the Bible as it presents itself. Understanding the Bible as a single story. But the Bible's not just a story. The Bible is our story, right? The Bible is a story, but it is also our story. And biblical theology seeks to understand that. This isn't just a story that happened in the past. This is the story that we're a part of. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. Our fathers. We're part of the same spiritual family as the Israelites who passed through in the Exodus event. That's our story. Or Romans 16, verse 20. Yep, in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That has obvious applications to the Christians in Rome, right? It's probably talking to, about false teachers, and people try to cause divisions. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think what Paul has in mind here is 
necessarily the eschatological crushing of Satan under your feet, but it's the crushing of Satan as he's revealing himself through those who cause divisions in the earlier context, right? But we can have the eschatological crushing of feet in mind, and we can say that's true of us as well. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. This is our story. We're a part of it. We will one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We will one day be in the presence of God. We will one day hear the declaration, I am your God and you are my people, like God's people did on Sinai. But we will hear it on Mount Zion. It's our story as well. So biblical theology seeks to understand the story of the Bible so that we can apply it to our own story. We are the ones who are redeemed, and we are the ones who experience the God of redemption. And we read about our fathers and our mothers in this book. So biblical theology seeks to understand the Bible as the Bible presents itself. Not that that systematic theology is unbiblical, but that it doesn't... It, it truly doesn't seek to understand the Bible the way the Bible was given to us. It's not bad. It's not wrong. It's legitimate, and we defended that already. But it doesn't seek to read the Bible as the way the Bible was given to us. Does that make sense? Good. Yeah, James. Do you feel like there's even, like, a, just when you said as given, I thought yeah. it was given with that passage of verse. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I would say I would say probably not, um, and I would say that. I would just wonder why you would think that, right? Because if I talk about chapters, let's say I talk about I'm on chapter eight of the magician's nephew in the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm not thinking about that in systematic categories. I'm thinking about it in story categories. So I, I, while the chapter and verse divisions. I'd be interested in just exploring why you asked that a little bit more. Um, but the chapter and verse divisions are often used in systematic ways. Romans 16.20 says this, but it doesn't necessitate systematic theological bent, I think. In fact, I think it probably lends itself more towards biblical theology. Because, like, look at this book. Look at page, I don't know. For me, it doesn't have a page number in my Bible. Take a look at uh, the table of contents, right? It has a table of contents. It's broken up into an Old Testament and a New Testament. Right there, there's already a sense of progressive revelation and story, right? It tells you that, and depending on what, your, your Bible might divide it up into narrative, poetry. I've seen Bibles that do that before. And if your Bible does that, prophecy, if Bible does do that, then it's even, uh, they're revealing, this is, a, this is a book. It has a beginning, it has an end, it has a story to tell, right? And then, just like any other book, if you have a page one and a page two and a page three and a page four, which your Bible does, you would think that you would need to read page one to understand page three, right? You would think you need to understand chapter one to understand chapter 20, There's no book that we pick up and we say, I'm going to start in chapter 17 this morning. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the our English Bibles, most of our English Bibles today, follow the order of the Septuagint. So that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. So um, when the when the Septuagint translators came in and translated from Hebrew into Greek, they ordered the Bible um, <clears throat> not according to genre. So they put all poetry together, all prophecy together, all narrative together. Yeah. Yep. So that's why that's why our Bibles are like that. Some people make a big deal about like returning to a Tanakh. Um, like the 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 Hebrew order in the Bible. Um, and I think that there are some things to be revealed in that. There's some interesting observations. But this was the ordering that Paul read. This is the ordering that Peter read, that James read, that Jesus read. Uh, And so I think if we're going to go with an ordering of the Bible, I think it makes sense to go with the ordering that the New Testament authors read. But I think we can make interesting observations about the Hebrew Bible if we read them in the order that was originally given. 
but yeah, it's, it's, I think, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, good question. Any other questions on that? Seeking to read the Bible as it was given to us? We'll, we'll go to number two then. Uh, biblical theology seeks to experience the Bible as the Bible is intended to be experienced. Right, and this is kind of a subcategory of the first one, because if we read the Bible as the Bible presents itself, then we're going to experience the Bible as the Bible is meant to be experienced. But this, this deserves its own category, I think, because um, so often we, we read our Bibles with a systematic theological bent. And I'm not against systematic theology. I love systematic theology. And I think systematic theology is necessary. It's even when doing biblical theology, it's necessary to keep proper boundaries uh, and theological categories. Um, but we lose something of the experience of the Bible when it just becomes almost like a dictionary to us, don't we? So let me, let me ask this. Uh, what what affects us more? Okay, What affects us more? Truth communicated with propositional statements or truth communicated through story? Yeah, most definitely. Truth communicated through story. Or, or um, let me ask you like this. What's more motivating to you to love your child? Okay? If you have a child, what's more motivating? Someone telling you, love your child, or someone telling you a story saying, maybe an old man saying, I, I really, my, my child uh, has no relationship with me. I have no relationship with her. And I just wish, I just wish that when she asked for that lollipop, I had given it to her when she was young. I just wish that we had done more things on the weekend together. I just wish I had sat down and talked to her and read stories to her. And now I don't even know my daughter. What's more motivating, right? <laughs> the story. Because God has wired us to be story kind of people. Or let me ask it like this. And I want you to talk to the person next to you about this. Are we primarily... That's an important word, primarily. Thinking beings or feeling beings? Are we primarily thinking beings or feeling beings? Talk to the person next to you about that. Okay, what do you guys think? Are we primarily feeling beings, feeling creatures, or are we primarily thinking beings? Are we primarily thinking creatures? You think feeling? Why is that? Yeah, what we feel, we think. I think that's often very, very true. I'm not asking if it needs to be true or it should be true, but I'm asking who are we at the core of our beings, right? Of course, Paul says to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. But I'm asking most naturally, what has God wired us to be? Affectionate feeling beings or robotic thinking beings? <laughs> Good. What, any other ideas about that? Yeah, so Eve sees the tree and desires it. Then she determines it's able to make one wise, and she takes it and eats it. It's a holistic turn, isn't it? I was going to show you guys Genesis, I'm sorry, Ephesians 4. Look, look at this. Now, starting in verse 17. Now, I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the fertility of their minds, right? So he's telling you not to think like Gentiles do. It's interesting he's telling Gentiles not to think like Gentiles do, right? It'd be like me telling you, don't think like an Ethiopian. Well, clearly you are an Ethiopian, right? Paul must have another category for these believers, and we'll talk about that in this class. They are darkened in their understanding. So we're talking about the mind, right? Their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, right? So all of this is mind stuff. But look at the ignorance, the darkened understanding, futility, futility is due to the hardness of their hearts. It's all sourced in the affections. They have hard affections before they have minds that are anti-God. They have become callous. Their hearts are hard. Their hearts are callous. 
and we could do it. We could even we could talk about this throughout the Bible, how the theme of affection show. But um, our our main problem in this world is not that we don't think rightly; it's that we don't love rightly. We don't love the God who made us. It's not that we don't think rightly about God. Of course, that's true. But we don't love God. We don't love Christ. We don't love the gospel. That's our biggest problem. And it's not fixed when we get our systematic theological categories right. It's fixed when our hearts cry out in praise to the God who saved us. And biblical theology seeks to address us Yes, as thinking beings, but as feeling beings as well. And so biblical theology has a way of affecting us holistically, I think, that systematic theology simply doesn't. Systematic theology should affect us at the emotional level. But because it's story, and because story affects us in our emotions, biblical theology uniquely is able to address us as holistic beings in a way that systematic theology is not. Or we can say this, what's, what is more effective in your life? Hearing someone tell you that gospel-centered preaching changes lives or experiencing the effect of gospel-centered preaching over a decade and realizing I'm a different person. It's the second. It's most definitely the second. As we experience things and we learn to feel rightly, we're, tra- we're transformed not just in our mind, but in our affection. We're transformed holistically. And then, uh, just as a pastoral note, okay, when you're preaching to people, the primary thing you're trying to do is not get them to have thoughts that are in line with God's Word. Yes, you should be doing that. And you should preach to the mind. You're trying to preach, though, to their affections, What you're trying to do is create in them a love for God, which should leave us saying, who is worthy of these things? Who is able to do such a task? Because only God can create affections for God, right? But we're not just preaching to the mind. We're preaching to the will. We're preaching to the emotions. We're trying to affect people deeply in our preaching and in our teaching. Yes, we do that by addressing the minds. Yes, we do that by addressing incorrect thoughts about God. But if we stop there, we have not gone as far as God wants people to go. And what this means is spiritual transformation is not just intellectual. Spiritual transformation is holistic. So you can be a smart theologian, but be the least gentle person that I know, and you have not been transformed. It's not simply thinking God's thoughts after him, but it's, it's feeling how God intends us to feel. It's feeling the way Christ felt about people. You can know categories of evangelism, and you can know, and you can think through well how evangelism fits within the sovereignty of God, but unless you feel the heart of the shepherd who sees people wandering and helpless, it hasn't affected you, haven't been transformed yet. Does that make sense? Okay. So biblical theology is uniquely designed to do that, I think. So biblical theology then seeks to understand the Bible as it presents itself, affecting our emotions and engaging our imaginations. This, is, this gets back to the importance of story. Uh, my wife and I have been slowly watching through the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings movies right now. If you haven't seen those, you need to see them, my friends. Come over, I'll pop popcorn, we'll get shawarma, we'll see them. But what's so affecting about those stories is that you see the littlest of all creatures acting courageously. Right? You see these hobbits that are like this tall, and they're acting more courageously than all these people who have strength and power and might. And they're like, that story just affects you deeply, and you want to be courageous like them. Or we say this, why, why is the Ethiopian, why is Ethiopian pride so deeply ingrained in every Ethiopian? And I think rightly so. What's that? Stories. Adwa victory. Other amazing stories like that. Stories that are passed down from generation to generation to generation. It affects you because of story. You feel pride in your identity because of story. Not because someone just tells you we're the greatest. They tell you why we're the greatest. They, they They might not even need to say we're the greatest. You just pick it up. 
right? Or the gospel is story, the Bible is story. The, the gospel affects us so deeply because it's the story of the God who loves us in spite of our sin and sends our, His Son to die for us and redeems us to Himself. And the more we understand of the big story of the Bible and the, how the gospel fits into that, the more we love that gospel, don't we? Because it affects us deeply. So the biblical theology then seeks to understand the Bible as the Bible presents itself, and that is as story. It seeks to understand the Bible as story. And we, I think uh, there's a few ways we could think about the story of the Bible. Um, we, could, we could think of it not just as a story, but let's say a compelling story. Are all stories good stories? <laughs> Do all stories deserve to be retold again? <laughs> no. There's reasons that some stories live for generations and some stories are forgotten. The Bible's story is meant to grip us. When we are reading about the flood narrative, when we're reading about David and Bathsheba, and we're seeing right before the David and Bathsheba story, you know, is the story of David just conquering all of his foes. Like he is bringing uh, the kingdom of God around the world. He's doing what Adam was supposed to do. And then he falls. I remember uh, my wife and I, we, for our Advent reading one year, I, I kind of broke the Bible up into a few different sections. We were reading 20 verses or so a night, and reading the Genesis story, reading the Exodus story, reading Leviticus, reading all this stuff, just like sections from the Bible. And we get to David and Bathsheba, and we were, like, we had been doing this for like 20 days or something like that. We get to David and Bathsheba. We were both just in tears, like reading about God's king, seeing that woman and sleeping with her. And then we're in tears again as God declares his faithfulness and says, I'm not going to depart from you like I did Saul. And that's how that story is meant to affect you. It's a compelling story. But it's not just a compelling story. We can say it's a romantic story. It's a romantic story as well. It's a story that's meant to woo us. It's a story that doesn't just exist um, apart from us or without us needing to respond. It's the story of the God who is romancing us. The story of the God who is wooing us, who, who says in Hosea 2, 14, Therefore, behold, I will lure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards in the valley of Achor, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the lands of Egypt. And I will declare, I will say in that day, declares the Lord, you will, know, you will call me my husband and no longer my Baal. And I will remove the names of Baal from her mouth and they shall be remembered no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword of war from the land. And I will make you lie down and safely. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know that I am the Lord. That's what God is doing to us in this story. He's wooing us. He's calling us with a story of undying love. It's a story that's meant us to call, fall in love with the God who wrote it. That's what the story is meant to do. But it's also, we could also say it's a didactic story as well. A didactic story. So it's a, it's a story that's meant to teach us, right? A story that's meant to give us right living. It's a story that shapes worldview, which all stories do. All stories shape worldview. The question is, what story are you living in? Why has the West declined so much recently over the past 150 years? Because of the Darwin story. Right? Because if we came from monkeys and we have no purpose in this world, of course, we didn't, I'm, I'm being silly, but of course they don't say we all came from monkeys. But if we came from purposelessness, nothingness, 
and we end in nothingness, and we're survival of the fittest is the only thing that's important, and maybe we're the bad guys if we're the ones using the earth. Maybe we're the parasite. Maybe our sexuality needs to evolve. <laughs> then you get what you're, what's happening in the U.S. today, right? How, how is... How is communism so easily able to take over a country? It happens through story. It happens through story. It, 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 it brings people into the story and it says there's class struggle. You may not be aware of it. There's power struggles. You may not be aware of it, but let me in on Let me let you in on it. Let me open your eyes. This is a story of the rich and the poor. This is a story of the oppressor and the oppressed. And you're a part of that story. It's a story of... Antithesis and thesis and synthesis. And once you buy into that story, it shapes the way you view everything. It makes you have white guilt or it makes you have, uh, makes you think that everything is, everything that's hard in your life is because of the unnamed, faceless oppressor who has a certain skin color. And you reinterpret your entire life in light of that narrative. How is that able to take over the West so quickly? Story. Because the person who controls the story controls the outcome of the world. What people need is the right story. If they have the right story, it reshapes how they view everything in life. That's why story is so important. It tells us how to define success and failure. It tells us what the trajectory of history is, right? Is the trajectory of history this continual thesis, antithesis, synthesis, as Marx would have us believe? Is the story one of survival of the fittest, as Darwin would have us believe? Or is the story one of Christ putting all of his foes under his feet until there's one enemy left and that's death? Is the story one of gradual decline of the church in history, or is the story the one of gradual victory of the church in history? Story affects the way we view the entire world. And if we see ourselves, if we see ourselves the way that Hebrews 11 describes us, These all, all of these, all the people of faith in, in Hebrews 11, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Do you see what's, be, what's happening? That story, that's saying you fit into this story, you're the conclusion of this story, you play a significant role in this story, and all of these people look to what you experience now. Story affects people. Story is important. And I guess to the last one, it's not just a compelling story, a romantic story, a didactic story, but it's a true story. It's a true story. It's a story set within reality. It's not Hansel and Gretel. It's not the Lord of the Rings. It's not Harry Potter. It's not the Hunger Games. It's a true story. The things we're reading about actually happened. The things we're reading about in the future will actually happen. And it's a story that continues to be written as the God who is sovereign over all history is taking his pen and writing the next chapter that we get to be a part in. And people will look back and ask, did we play our part well? Did we live in light of the story? Did we believe the story? Did we pass on the story? That, what, was, what were the Israelites supposed to pass on to their children when they looked at the Ebenezer, when they looked at the stones? They weren't supposed to pass on propositional truth. They were supposed to pass on, God brought us out of Exodus, or out of Egypt, in the Exodus event. What do we pass on to our children? We pass on, God became man and died for our sins. We pass on story. Will we pass on the story well? That's what biblical theology asks of us. Will we preserve the story? Will we forget parts of the story? Will we play our part in the story well? Will we live in obedience to the story? Biblical theology then seeks to understand 
the Bible a story, and it seeks to understand the little stories in light of the bigger story. It seeks to understand the little stories in light of the bigger story, right? So we can talk about Abraham in Genesis 12. Let's turn there. Or let's, let's look at Genesis 4 first. Cain kills Abel. Right? Cain kills Abel. That's a story, right? Two brothers sacrificing. One of them kills the other. That's a story that in and of itself is compelling. It's interesting. But how does fitting it within the bigger story help us understand more of what's going on and the drama of it? What was just promised beforehand? What was just promised before the Genesis 4 story? What's that? Animosity. Animosity was promised between who? Yeah, between the serpent and the seed of the woman, right? And what's said of the seed of the woman? What will she do to the serpent and see the serpent? Crush. So then we get to Genesis 4 and we have a good guy and a bad guy. And what are we supposed to think? Oh, yeah, good guy's going to win, right? And then we find the bad guy wins. What? Actually, I think, I think we're supposed to even read it. that We're supposed to be surprised that Cain is the bad guy. Because look, at, we get to the story of, uh, we have the story of the good guy is going to kill the bad guy. And then we, and uh, the woman is going to have a child. And then we get to Genesis 4.1, and Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. And saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Oh, that's the good guy. That's the one who's going to crush the serpent. But then we find out he's the seed of the serpent. Right? Or what about, um, what about the Genesis 12 story with Abraham? God comes to a man and says, leave your father's house. Go to a land I will show you. That's a compelling story, right? Whew, that's got to be hard. Can you imagine leaving everything you've ever known and everything you've ever loved and everyone you've ever held dear and going to a new place that a God who you just met is telling you to go to? Man, look at that faith. But what about in light of the bigger story? How does that add to this little story? Help me understand Abraham in light of the bigger story. Good. That's exactly right. What do we find out about his wife Sarah at the end of chapter 11? Yeah, she's barren. Is a story of looking for a, someone who's going to crush the serpent. And within that story, we focus on somebody who can't have children. Which Paul will read that in Romans 4 as the God who brings life out of nothing. He sees that as resurrection. Or Hebrews 11 will help us see that the land that God was pointing Abraham to was the church. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. He left his own country and was going to a new country. And what we eventually find out is that we are that city that Abraham was looking towards. What about uh, 2 Samuel 7? Well, let's not go there. Let's go to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is poetry, right? But it tells us we should still read the poetry sections as part of the bigger story. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Right? So that, I mean, that's an interesting story. You have a king and there's bad guys trying to take over. Oh, that's a great story, right? He's being besieged by the enemies. But if we read this in light of the bigger story, 
Let's think about this. What about Genesis? What if we read in light of Genesis 3.15? Which I think we should do. How does that affect the way we read this story? That's right. The seed of the serpent is trying to crush the head of the seed of the woman, who is David's son. Right? That's what's happening here. Which makes sense of verse 4. He who sits in heaven laughs. Why does he laugh? Genesis 3.15. Why does he laugh? 2 Samuel 7. Why does he laugh? Exodus 19. Why does he laugh? Genesis 12, 15, 17. I've made promises. And they're not going to overthrow those promises. Would you see this? Where, where do we see... This, this is an inauguration psalm, right? Where do we see the ultimate inauguration of the king? At the cross, right? Where the nations raged against the Son of God. Not Solomon, but Jesus Christ. The kings of the earth set themselves against Jesus Christ. Seeking to cast off the seed of the woman for good. And he who sat in heaven laughed. And he said, this is weak. This is weak, guys. I have made my promises. And this king who you have lifted up onto a cross instead of onto a throne, he is the king of the world. Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. So kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Kiss the sun, red in light of the Davidic monarchy, is simply declaring allegiance to Israel. Declaring allegiance to Israel's king. But red in light of the whole story is declaring allegiance to the king of kings, isn't it? To Jesus Christ himself. It's a call for all people, but especially rulers, to find Christ as the one who is the greatest king, and unless you submit your kingship and your rulership to him, you will be destroyed, right? Do you see that? So we can see these individual stories, but read in light of the grand story, it becomes so much more meaningful. Or think about even, uh, how does the book of uh, Joshua fit in with what we've seen so far in the story? So we, we know Moses wrote the, five, the first five books. Let, let's actually go back. Look, look, at, look at the end of Exodus. I just love the Bible, guys. Oh, my goodness. I love the Bible. It's the end of Exodus. God's glory descends into the tabernacle, right? And no one can enter into it. Look at, look at Exodus 40, 35. And Moses was not able to enter to the tent of meeting because of the clouds settling on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses even. Moses went on top of Mount Sinai. Moses saw the back of the Lord. Moses heard the voice of God. Moses' face was glowing, but he's not able to enter the tabernacle. Because the presence of God is so thick in the cloud there. So then look at Leviticus 1. Verse 1, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So where's God in Leviticus 1.1? He's in the tent. And where's Moses? Outside of the tent. He speaks to him from the tent of meeting. From it. So his voice travels. I, this is obvious, right? But I'm explaining it. It's going to make sense in a second. His voice is, he's in the tent, his voice goes out of the tent, and Moses hears it outside the tent. Moses did not have direct contact with God. Look, though, once we get to the end of Leviticus, look at the beginning of Numbers. <laughs> what does Numbers 1-1 say? Someone read it to us. Wait, where did he speak to him in? In the tent. Do you see that? Not from the tent. In the tent. At the beginning of Leviticus... Moses could not enter. At the end of Exodus, Moses could not enter. At the beginning of Numbers, oh, he can enter. He can go in. And what's Leviticus about? The sacrifices, right? How do you get from outside of the tent of meeting to inside of the tent of meeting? Through sacrifices that God provided. And Moses himself can go into the presence of God because of the sacrifices in Leviticus. 
Numbers then seeks to show us these, these long genealogies, or all these numbers. I mean, starting from chapter 1, right? You have all these numbers, 45,650 in verse 25, 74,600, 57,400, 40,500, 32,200, and the whole book is just this. It's, it doesn't make for very interesting reading unless you read it in light of the Bible's story. Why might these numbers be significant? What do you think? Think what we've seen so far. What promises has God made? To multiply you. Numbers is a story of covenant faithfulness. The God who promised to multiply Abraham's offspring. Oh my goodness, we have a whole book just telling us how much he's done it. And and it's long and it's tedious, but it's supposed to be. Because if you're going to read a list of people that's as many as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seas, it's going to take quite a while to do it. Deuteronomy then begins with uh, pointing our attention. Look at Deuteronomy 1. It points us back to the story of the verse 2, what's supposed to be an 11-day journey that turns into a 40-year journey because of the unfaithfulness. It, it, it kind of wraps up the story of the first generation also who's not able to enter into the promised land. And then it says, what about the next generation? What is going to happen to them? Well, Moses is still alive and Moses is going to teach them. Moses is going to tell them what's happened. Moses is going to look at the first generation as, don't be like them because you won't enter the promised land without faith, without relationship with the God who is giving you this promised land. So the whole story of Deuteronomy is the story of joining the commands of God with faith and relationship with God with faith. And it looks to the fact that, look, it, it, it ends with you're going to be exiled. You're going to be vomited out of the land. But a day is going to come when God's going to bring you back and give you the heart that you need. Do you see how that fits into the story? Joshua. Joshua is the story of the next leader. Right? Because the question is, God was with Moses. Will God be with Israel through Joshua or not? And the whole theme of Joshua is yes. God is with Israel through Joshua just like he was with Israel through Moses. Look at, uh, look at Joshua 1, verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So we're talking about, put your biblical theology hats on. We're talking about entering the promised land. We're talking about promise of God's presence. What should that remind us of? Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you as you conquer the promised land. The Exodus story, certainly. What was Moses's? Remember Moses' prayer to God, Yah Yapsiga. Yes. Look at Exodus thirty-three, fourteen. Our look at verse starting in verse twelve. Moses said to the Lord, "See, you say to me, bring these people up." But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and I have found, also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order that I might find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Remember Moses' prayer, unless you go with us in Exodus 32, unless your presence goes with us in the promised land, I don't even want to go. I don't want to go into that promised land if you're not there, God. If you're not bringing these people with me, kill me. So of Joshua, as I was with Moses, my presence will go with you. You will conquer this land and I will give you rest. And that's why, I mean, Joshua is all about this, right? When Israel crosses the Red Sea in Joshua 3, 
how do they cross the sea? The Ark of the Covenant goes in, the waters split, and Israel walks through. It's the Exodus story again, isn't it? As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Let's look at Judges. So at the end of Joshua, well, what was it that God said, you'll take the land and I will give you rest? Go through the book of Joshua and just look at rest, the theme of rest. But look at Joshua 21, 43. Thus the Lord gave Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. That's the Abrahamic covenant, right? And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest. It's the promise to Moses, the promise to Abraham happening in Joshua. So they take control of the land, and then the story of Judges comes. Judges comes after they take control of the land, and we've been promised that there will be a king, but we're not there yet, right? Where were we promised that there would be a king? Think of the story of the Bible. Where have there have been promises of kings so far? Yeah, in the law. That's exactly right. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy promised, Deuteronomy 17, I think, that there will be a king, and the king needs to write the law every year. Yeah, but yeah, go ahead. Yes, when Jacob blessed Judah, the ruler's staff will not depart from between your feet, right? But before that even, yeah. Abraham. Abraham and Isaac were both told that. Actually, if you look at Genesis... I know I normally use my computer to show you guys the text, but when I'm doing biblical theology, I, I kind of know where, where things are on the page. Oh, yeah, here it is. Okay, Genesis 24, verse 60. Rebecca's, um, this is an explicit king language, but I think we can read this in light of the king theme. What is it that Rebecca's very good theologically informed, biblical theologically informed friends say to her? Our sister, you have become thousands of ten thousands. Okay. If she marries into Abraham's family, she's going to have a lot of kids. Right? And may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. So we're talking about a single offspring here who possesses many gates. This is at least a warrior, if not a king. Maybe a warrior, a great warrior king. Who we ultimately find is Jesus Christ, right? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He is the one that this prophecy is speaking of. But even before all that, even before Abraham, who's the first king? Adam. That's exactly right. So we should expect in a, restora- a story that restores Eden to see a restoration of Adam as the key- king priest, right? So Judges tells us of the dark time in Israel's history when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the theme of Judges. You see it over and over and over again. I look at, uh, especially towards the end, 17 verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 18 verse 1, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did uh, those days there was no king in Israel. Verse 19, in those days there was no king in Israel. In the end of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone who was right in his own eyes, Judges 21, 25. So it looks back to these promises of kings, and it says, we need that king, my friends, a king who can rule on a throne and who can execute God's law and bring in righteousness. What we don't need is a ruler who lasts for a little while and then dies and then there's a, someone else who captures us and then we cry out to God and the cycle happens again and again and again. We need consistency. We need a, a true ruler, right? How does Ruth fit in? When does Ruth fit into the story? Yes, yeah, during the time of the judges. That's how it starts. During the time of the judges. And there's a famine in the land, which is a sign of unfaithfulness, right? So you might be tempted when you read Judges to think, God is doing nothing. <laughs> God is up to no good. We're just getting judged for our sins, and every once in a while he delivers us, and then we go right back down into it again. You might be tempted to think that. And until you read Ruth. And you realize that in a time, in the darkest time of Israel's, probably the darkest time of Israel's history, God was actually at work to bring about the birth of the Messiah. Right? He, he, God is at work in a million ways that we're completely unaware of. And that, that becomes clear at the end of Ruth. 
when we have this genealogy that leads to David. That unless Ruth has this child with Boaz, David, the great king, doesn't come. God is faithful to his promises. Because let's talk about Samuel. Samuel is the story of a prophet of God who anoints the king. And then, yeah, um, James's question is very good. The Israelites seem to be condemned for choosing this king, right? I think, so why? Why in a story that's looking for a king is Israel condemned for asking for a king? What's that? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's where we end up going. But look just even at chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of blah, 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 blah. So what tribe is Saul from? Benjamin. What tribe are we looking for a king from? Judah. So that's our first hint. These people are not going about this the right way. They're, they're just like picking a guy. And, and we find out that Saul is taller than most people. Right? But he's afraid also. Um, look at yeah, 1 Samuel 8, verse 5. The elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. I think that's where they go wrong. And that's why God sees it as a rejection of him. The Lord grants his request, starting in verse 19, but he does it saying they're going their own way. I think, I think it's an expression of worldliness. They want to be like the other nations, so give us a king. What they should be saying is, we need the deliverer from Zion. We need someone to rule righteously over us, so please give us a king. They want to be like the world. So the, the desire for a king is not wrong. The desire for a king so we can be like everyone else is wrong. Right. Because look at the end of verse 7. They have rejected me from being king over them. Because God, God hadn't given them a king yet. And so calling for this king like all the other nations is an expression of their rejection of God. Then that's why uh, Solomon, or Samuel anointing David as king is not wrong. Right? We need a king. That's what the whole story has been about. And that's why 2 Samuel 7 is so amazing. Because God promises that, that David's line is going to be that kingly line. And it's that line that uh, is going to cause the people to walk in obedience. So then we get to Samuel, expression of David as the, um, the king, but it ends on a low note with the census, right? It ends up with the loan of, of David trying to look at his own glory in the kingdom. Uh, but God hasn't rejected him. God has not ultimately rejected him. And through sacrifice, David is able to save the people. When he builds the altar to God at the end of Samuel. So then we get to Kings. Kings very clearly fits into the story, right? Because it follows from David to Solomon, the division of the monarchy. The division of Israel and Judah, which ultimately it, it, it ends with two golden calves being created. One in the, because what, what's the problem? What, what's the problem if you're part of the northern kingdom? What city is not in the northern kingdom? Jerusalem, which is where you offer sacrifices and see God. Which should have prompted the people towards unity around Jerusalem. But instead, it prompts the people to construct golden calves and not just a golden calf, but two. Why two? One on the north side and one on the south side. Because, man, if you live in the south side, how inconvenient is it to go all the way to the north? Let's make it easier for the people. You know, if you're all the way in the south, you can just, you got a local golden calf. You don't need to go to the other golden calf and pick up your family, go all the way there. But even in God's judgment of dividing the kingdoms, he says, I will, I will leave one tribe. I will leave Jerusalem. I will leave Judah in Dave, with David. I will not cut off his dynasty. I will continue it. I will not treat him like I treated Saul. So the end of Kings and Chronicles, the people go into exile. Is that an expression of God being unfaithful or faithful? Faithful. 
God's being faithful to his covenant, and that's why he sends them into exile. He said that he would in Deuteronomy. So the prophets all talk about the day when they're going to come back from exile, and they connect it with the giving of the new heart, just like Moses did in Deuteronomy. But when they come back from exile, it's not what they thought. They construct the temple, construct the walls in Ezra and Nehemiah, right? And that's where the book of Psalms comes in. Psalms is written over all of this time. Where the earliest psalm we have is by Moses, and the latest psalm we have is post-exile. And it's a document written to give us Israel's, really, it's, it's assembled and compiled post-exile. So it's meant to be read in light of God's people coming back and not experiencing that new heart that they were supposed to experience, they wanted to experience. Right? We can read the individual psalms within their own time period, but we can read all of them in light of that return from exile. And we find God's people crying, crying out to God. And uh, book three is almost all lament psalms. Then we get to book five, and it's just eruption and praise and, and crying for the nations to come to know God, for, for Israel to be that kingdom of priests that they always were called to be by God. In the post-exile prophets, you talk about the day when all of God's promises will be restored and realized, and then we get to the Gospels and we find that that's all done in Christ, right? It's all done in Christ, and um, the epistles explain how it's done in Christ, and Revelation wraps it up and tells us how it's all going to end. So that's kind of how these individual books at a more in-depth level fit into that big story. Does that make sense, or any questions about that? The big story gives meaning to the individual stories in significant ways.